Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals, one of the most watched podcasts uh, and honest and, and, and frank and raw sometimes look at uh, the issues of uh, recovery and addiction. I'm Randall Carlisle. My co-host is Rachel Santizo. How are you? I'm doing great, Randall. Thanks for asking. Yeah, we uh, we as we were setting up for this, I froze up and you you froze up on my screen. So hopefully we won't go through any of that while we're doing this podcast. But uh, that's technology. Oh, and one other thing we should point out: uh, you're not wearing a mask, and I'm not wearing a mask because so far I don't think they've determined you can spread COVID through the internet or on a podcast. Have they? Not yet. Not yet. I'm waiting, patiently waiting, but as of today, they have not yet. Okay. We'd like to start out with a, a, a little news story. This will fit in very well with our guest. Uh, this is from uh, the Mayo Clinic, and it's a new study. Emergency room visits for opioid overdoses rose 28.5% last year. Uh, last year, they mean 2020, compared with 2018 and 2019. Uh, opioid overdoses accounted for one in every 313 emergency room visits in 2020. That compares with one in 400 in the previous two years. And one of the researchers, I get your thoughts on this, Rachel, uh, said COVID-19 and the disruptions in every part of our social and work lives made the situation even harder by increasing the risk of opioid misuse and relapse because people were separated from their social support and their normal routines. Absolutely. I think the isolation, right, like that's one thing that's very dangerous for us. Um, and then we were forced to isolate. And then a lot of our barriers, right, is going to be employment. And that's the first thing that was affected. So the jobs that we can normally get um, with, with backgrounds and history and, and is going to be the employment. And we were the first ones, our, our population were the first ones to lose employment or hard to find employment. So absolutely, I'm not surprised by those numbers at all. Do you, uh, you find that to be the case? I should point out, Rachel, is what, what's your title there, uh, program? Program, program director at, at one of the residential houses at, at Odyssey. Uh, have you noticed that with your clients? I mean, have you talked about that at all? Um, about opioids or about? Oh, about, uh, about the isolation and, and the things that they went through because of COVID. Yeah, absolutely. So we actually have gone on quarantine a couple of times because of COVID. And so we have to, we've been able to have the opportunity of walking through this process time and time again, right? Going um, through this. And so it's a topic of discussion quite often, right? And we can correlate it to say being on the streets or being incarcerated or what's happening in the outside world. And so it's also for our population, it's also an opportunity of growth and healing as well. So there's a lot of positive in this as well and how to thrive in challenging times. So it's not just negative, there can be a lot of positive that can come out of it as well, surrounded by the right tools and, and resources. Absolutely, well said. Should point out, Rachel is in recovery, as am I, and we're both celebrating nine years. Yes, Boy. we are. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Happy I love birthday. to celebrate together. So. Yeah. <laughs> and you know me pretty well, Rachel, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat sensitive and I'm certainly very human, but I don't cry very often, okay? And I must share with you that when I, years ago in television, interviewed our guest, 
uh, it brought tears to my eyes when he told me his story. So, yeah. So I'd like to introduce, he's a, he's been a, a, a friend ever since, and we, our paths have crossed, Dennis Cicchini. Uh, welcome, Dennis. Sign on. Show us your face. <laughs> there There's you are. Face. There's my face. Don't turn away. <laughs> Dennis, uh, I, I, I don't want to uh, take away from your story. So maybe you could just, when I, when, I, when I interviewed you, I wasn't sure of the background of your story. Sometimes reporters just say, they say, hey, go out and interview this person and put together a story. And when you started telling me your story, uh, and it goes back several years now, uh, it, 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 it really, it moved me. Uh, and so maybe you can just share the brief background of your story and why uh, you were involved in this whole effort to deal with opioid overdoses and, and, and awareness of all the issues that go along with, with addiction. Well, Randall, uh, as we've spoken before, uh, my son, Tennyson, uh, died of an overdose of heroin uh, in 2015. He had been suffering with this disease, this awful disease, for 10 years. Uh, he was a hockey player. He uh, was quite a good hockey player. Uh, I always enjoyed watching him skate because sometimes I can't even walk, but he could skate like the wind. <laughs> but um, he hurt his shoulder playing hockey. This was when he was in college and playing on a club team. Uh, he hurt his shoulder. He went to a uh, physician uh, for help with the, uh, with the shoulder. And of course, they glom on to the pain in those days, period. So they provided him with an opioid of some type for the pain. And he became uh, addicted in a short amount of time. Unbeknownst to his mother and I, because uh, he lived at uh, Weber State University. And then when he finished his college, uh, he lived alone in his own apartment as he worked at a um, health equipment company um, here in, in Salt Lake. Um, he uh, continued with his addiction for all of that time, unbeknownst to us, and uh, not getting the kind of help that he should have gotten until he was uh, about 32 and we became aware of it. Uh, he uh, allowed us to get him some outpatient help. And one of the difficulties with an adult uh, addiction is that the loved ones that want so desperately to help him or her are unable to do so because of their age, which is something that really needs to be corrected in all of this. I'm going to, I'm going to just preface all of this which, with, I am not an expert in this opioid crisis or this addiction disease, but uh, I do have some expertise in losing my son. And it taught us some things, my wife and I, about what we might've been able to do to help him. So uh, getting uh, treatment for him, quality treatment, was a very difficult element in his disease. And what I mean by quality treatment, evidence-based treatment. There's all kinds of treatment out there, all kinds. Rachel, you know that, it's all over the place. But a lot of it doesn't do 
real good. And in some cases it does real harm. Uh, he had an outpatient program, which I'm not sure did much at all uh, to help him. They even came into the house instead of him having to go to a group, which I know didn't do anything to help him at that particular point. Uh, didn't realize it then, but he progressed in his disease. Um, in uh, 2015, early 2015, late 2014, we uh, finally convinced him that he needed to go to treatment. He did go to one treatment center, which was terrible. Again, because we had no idea how to select a treatment center that would uh, coincide with his specific needs. Everybody's different. Everybody has to be treated differently in terms of how they will respond to treatment. Um, and uh, so that place had more drugs in it than any other place, than on the street, actually. So we uh, got him out of there and put him into another residential care treatment facility, uh, which he progressed pretty well through. It was at that facility that we found out that as a five or six-year-old, he had been molested as a child by one of our babysitters. And he had carried that for his entire life without getting assistance with it, without us even being able to recognize that he was going through trauma. Again, I will regret that for the rest of my life, which is an important element in all of this, recognizing our children's trauma. Uh, anyway, he uh, went through the treatment program. He graduated from the treatment program, basically, uh, if you want to call it a graduation. They did not provide him with uh, any sort of recovery program or plan coming out. My wife and I were too ignorant of this disease and what happens with it to understand that he should have had one. They did not give him any naloxone, any, any Narcan whatsoever. In fact, they never talked to us. We, we went there every three weeks to go through classes with him to discuss this. And the bottom line was, is that we never did get any discussion about naloxone. You didn't even know what it was at the time, did you? No, I did not. I didn't find out what naloxone was or even the name until after he died. And I'll, I'll tell you a story about that, which was kind of heart-wrenching. But um, in 2014, the legislature had approved it for use with uh, a doctor's prescription. But treatment centers, I don't know whether they didn't know about it, at least this one and the one before, they, they never talked about it. Uh, they never gave it to us. He came home. Uh, and we had him stay with us so that we could help him and watch him. Uh, in four days, he overdosed on our bathroom floor and died in front of us, unable to, uh, to revive him because we didn't have naloxone. In fact, the, the police who were the first to arrive from the 911 call didn't have it either in those days. That was uh, May of 2015. So uh, the only reason that I ever found out about naloxone was when he died, my wife and I sat down after the initial shock, obviously, of a few days and weeks uh, to try to determine how in the world we lost our firstborn son. Why uh, two smart people couldn't help him with this disease? Uh, one of the things that we came up with was that we needed to have some uh, status with the uh, government, with 
uh, courts to be able to get our son into treatment, it was a horrendous thing to try to get him into treatment. I actually followed somebody's advice to uh, kick him out of the house, which is the worst thing I ever did in my life. And it turned out to be not the best thing for him either. But um, we, we needed, first of all, we thought to, to get a, a status in court that would allow us to help an adult child through these kinds of issues. So we were working on the Essential Treatment um, and Recovery Act that was passed in 2017 uh, by the legislature, which allows a parent or a loved one of any type, uncle, cousin, wife, anybody, uh, to petition the court to uh, provide treatment and get that person into treatment for a person who is suffering from any kind of addiction. Um, that, that, in working on that, we had been contacting, I had several uh, legislators. One of them was Carol Spackman Moss. And I asked her to uh, help us and get on board with that kind of an issue. And I told her this story about how Tennyson died and uh, Randall, you talked about you cried. She was uh, sobbing uncontrollably. And she just said to me, oh, Dennis, I can't tell you how sorry I am because Aloxone was available to your son. And we didn't do a very good job of getting it advertised. And no one understood it. Um, so she got on board with that particular process of the Essential Treatment and Intervention Act, and it did pass. Uh, there is that status now that loved ones can gain in trying to get people into Odyssey House who may be reluctant to do that. Everybody's reluctant, right, Rachel? It's, yeah. it's a harrowing process to, yeah. to try to uh, stop uh, using drugs. But um, she, she uh, woke us up to that. My wife, uh, my wife said, we need to get some information out. Uh, about naloxone to parents and loved ones who don't know about it. And this was in uh, still 2015. Um, so I was working with the Substance Use and Mental Health Advisory Council at the time I got involved with them. And uh, the director, uh, Mary Lou Emerson, indicated when I told her that what we wanted to do, my wife said, let's get to Reagan uh, science. Let's get billboards up. Let's get them up to talk about naloxone and what it can do to save lives. And that was the impetus of the naloxone saves campaign. The, the, uh, I, I just wish it had happened earlier, but the, uh, the uh, Substance Use and Mental Health Advisory Council uh, provided a $100,000 grant to uh, pay for these boards initially. Reagan kicked in money to get them all over uh, so everyone could see them. And they're still putting them up, by the way, to their right. companies paying them for that. They're still doing it um, all over the ballot. But um, Jennifer Plum, you know, we got to meet her too. And that's where the idea came that we, we should be getting people the, the information about Utah naloxone and how to uh, carry this life-saving drug uh, to help people. So um, those, those kinds of things uh, occurred after Tennyson's death because of his death. And one of the things I always say is that I kind of hope that, that his death would save others. 
I think it has to some extent. So that, that's pretty much the story of, of how Tennyson died and how I came to be involved in all of this. I used to be in another life, uh, an architect and CEO of a large architectural firm, but uh, that was another life. That, uh, can you see why I, why he, his story brought tears to my eyes when I, when I interviewed him? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to hold back tears and I also have this heart full of, um, my heart is full of so much love and compassion and also so much, I'm so incredibly proud of your courage as well. Um, and speaking of language that so many people need to hear because I know, I know that it can, it can be hard, uh, it can be challenging. Um, and you, and I'm, I'm so grateful for you, Dennis. Um, and I see your room full uh, of you and I see your room full of your son and how incredibly proud I am of you and to be being this voice and saying the things that everybody needs to hear. And, and those billboards are full of people I know. And to be a faith that has been standing for it. And, and I wanna thank you for, for doing all that. And, and it's true. And the more that we educate, and I've been in similar situations where um, I've used it myself on people. And when I've had, you know, calling on one and they show up and, and then I'm, I'm looked at for using it. And um, so I, I wanna thank you. I wanna sincerely thank you for being that voice and saying the things that everybody needs to hear. From uh, from yeah, everybody needs to hear. I appreciate that, Rachel. It's just no thanks necessary. It just has to be done. It's got right. to be you know, got to save lives. You brought up a significant point uh, about the fact that your son was sexually abused when he was when he was young, which we obviously refer to as trauma, <laughs> and. Uh, and, and all of our, we, we, at Odyssey and, and, and a lot of places, a lot of treatment centers now look at the issue as much more than just addiction, uh, because everybody can, I mean, you know, you can get clean in jail, you can get clean, you can get clean just about anywhere, but if you don't get, if you don't deal with the root causes of why somebody was using the person's going to relapse when they when they get out of whatever environment it is that kept them clean, and that's why that's why we work so hard, uh, obviously on keeping on keeping somebody away from using while they're in treatment, but getting to the root cause of why, and 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 using trauma informed care. And I think back even just to the the years you were talking about, I I don't think people had embraced that concept. Uh, like like treatment centers have now. Let me let me give you an example of, of what you're saying because it's absolutely true and it's it's one of the reasons that I became locked in on uh, trauma informed care on uh, childhood trauma and its effects on this disease. Um, my son, as I told you, actually identified the fact to the counselors at the residential treatment center that he had been molested as a five or six year old. And uh, he allowed them to tell us, otherwise we wouldn't have known because he was an adult, of course. So there's another problem. But um, the, the thing that bothered me most about that, especially after the fact, is that in 
his release from the facility, we were not referred to psychiatric care for that trauma. We weren't referred to any kind of trauma-informed care afterwards, which uh, in four days, he relapsed right back into the things that made him want to self-medicate in the first place. And that's pretty much, I think, the impetus for why that treatment failed. It was 12-step treatment. And I have a, uh, you know, not being an expert, I would just say, I don't think it works very well because it requires you to uh, give yourself up to a higher power, whatever that power is. They don't say God anymore, but they say higher power. And I think, I think our children are too self-reliant Maybe that was our fault as baby boomers. We made them way too self-reliant. And bottom line is he ain't doing that. He never did that. But his uh, trauma, when, when I talk about uh, uh, substance use disorder, uh, the things I talk about are the three steps in trying to get rid of this disease, to eradicate it. And that's prevention, treatment, and recovery. And all of those things have... Uh, various elements in them that need to be accomplished in order to ensure that they are, here's the word, effective. So a lot of things we're doing, a lot of things that happen out there. I especially appreciate Odyssey House because I know you're effective. And one of the things that should have told me that you were effective is when I, effective is when I talked to Tennyson about going there, I said, oh, no way, because I know he was trying not to get better at that particular point. He knew you would get him better. That was the word on the street. So uh, the, the thing with trauma is that part of prevention, I think, has to be a public awareness of how to identify, number one, trauma in your children. We're talking about children at five or six, 10 or 11, high school, whenever it happens, uh, how to identify childhood trauma and being able to talk about it with your child and then understand where to go for help. We still don't have an understanding of where to go for help for people like my wife and I, who had no knowledge about this disease or how to help our children with it. And certainly how to identify trauma. I think trauma uh, in our children, and it's increasing these days, all kinds of trauma um, is, is the number one reason we are seeing these increases in substance use disorder throughout our society. And if we don't start dealing with that hard, fast, and effectively, we're going to continue to have to deal with this problem of substance use disorder. I was, uh, I was sexually molested by a pedophile when I was in sixth grade. Uh, um, and I, I later became an alcoholic. Now, I'm not saying that the two are definitely related, but it was an issue that I never dealt with, especially back in the 50s. Uh, I mean, you don't tell your you don't tell your friends, hey, this this guy did this to me. Uh, and you don't tell your parents at that age. And it, it uh, and, and it, it only came out uh, when I went to a private uh, therapist after going through a treatment program, because even in the treatment program, I was embarrassed to talk about that. It's hard uh, to come out, very hard to bring it out. And, 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 and after being able to talk about it, uh, things seemed to get easier in terms of me 
not wanting to get high with alcohol all the time. And, and, and it made it easier. Yeah. It made recovery easier after I dealt with that. Self-medication may not have been that necessary to you anymore. Yeah, so right. I don't know, when, when you talk about identifying those kinds of things, uh, Randall, the, the, the physicians uh, must be better trained. And let me, let me give you a reason why I say that. Better trained at identifying it and treating it. My, my son did have one symptom uh, that he probably had more, but the only one I ever recognized was that he had difficulty sleeping, couldn't sleep. So we did take him to doctors, you know, doctor and a doctor, another doctor to, to try to help him get sleep. Well, what they did to help him get sleep was give him medications to make him sleep. But uh, instead of finding out what was keeping him up, why he was having difficulty sleeping, uh, they just medicated him. And that told him that, well, I can kind of deal with this with medication, I think, instead of being able to get to the root of the problem, talking about it, bringing it out, understanding that it wasn't his fault. It never will be his fault. There are people in this world who have antisocial behavior that, that has to be dealt with, but it's not your fault. And so uh, he never got that kind of talk. I don't even know that he got that kind of talk in the treatment center when he finally revealed what was happening. So uh, it may have been why he was so quick to want to self-medicate again with heroin, so. And I think through all of this is, there is the trauma once we recognize, we remove the substances and then we recognize the trauma. This is a lifelong thing that we have to continue yes. work on. Randall and I, we, you know, the nine years, but we have to work on this because the trauma gets triggered. The trauma is still there. It doesn't last as long or come out as strong, but it still happens. Right. And so it's that aftercare, it's that recovery, it's that community. So treatment really begins after treatment. So it's setting up for success and, and having those resources, right. like awesome, like aftercare community and spaces to still go to after someone leaves treatment, because sometimes you have to work harder on your recovery years down the road. Whether if it be, I've noticed that it's more emotional recovery than it is other things now years down the road. And so this is something I have to work on every day. So it's identifying those things and, and working on those things because the trauma is still there and sometimes it's louder than others. The, uh, the thing that shocked me uh, was when you said he left a treatment center with no recovery plan, no aftercare plan. I mean, that's one of the, like Rachel just said, I'm still in, I'm still in aftercare and I will be for the rest of my life. Exactly. I, you know, it, it, we were, I'll just say it, my wife and I were too dumb to understand that that was a real problem. We, uh, we just appreciated that he was back to his normal self, we thought, and that uh, he could maybe move forward from there and start to piece back together his life without thinking about this trauma is, is ingrained in him and needs to be dealt with, without thinking about he has to have a program that he can follow and understand without thinking about the necessity for something as fundamental as how he's going to get employment. You know, one of the other things for, for uh, recovery is that we've got to start helping our substance use disorder sufferers get work. Work is a way to, to help self-esteem and, and keep things yeah. uh, you know, kind of together in your life, certainly with money, everybody needs money, but it, it has an emotional uh, bond also. 
And so uh, we need to do all we can to help them. One of the things I wanted to say as part of that, Randall, is that I hadn't, I, I lost some weight uh, recently. And my suits that I had when I was CEO, which are very nice suits, don't fit anymore. It didn't fit anymore. So we met at Odyssey that day when you asked me to do this because I was dropping off <laughs> not just my suits, all my dress pants and everything else that didn't fit. Um, and the reason I dropped them off is that I, I called Adam and asked him, do you take these kinds of clothes to help with uh, your, um, your residents uh, to get jobs, to, to go to interviews, to, to where to work? Because in a lot of cases, when uh, I found with my son, when he was addicted, he dressed like a 19 year old or younger. Uh, he, uh, you know, the, the baggy shorts and the loose t-shirt and the baseball cap and all of that stuff, you know how that was. But it's not good to get a job with. You can't do that. And basically, they don't have the clothes to do it. So um, I would just like to ask your listeners to understand that those kinds of things can help too bringing, I don't mean your crappy clothes with holes in them, bring down clothes you're not going to wear anymore. Clothes that are that are of all sizes, apparently Adam said, there isn't a yeah. size differential <laughs> that is required, just all sizes, uh, bring them down uh, to Odyssey House and they can put them to good use helping our, our young people and adults, older people, get the work that they need in order to continue their recovery. You should you you should have seen Adam's office when when Dennis was done. I mean, that's when I ran into him and asked him to be on this podcast. But it looked like Adam was setting up. A, Adam, by the way, is our CEO. Uh, looked like he was setting up a, cl a clothing store or something. <laughs> yeah, this is the only shirt I have left. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, we we're, we're just about out of time, Dennis. What? Uh, let me ask you because a lot of a lot of parents with adult addicted loved ones uh, watch this and what what's your best advice to them because you've certainly learned the hard way and i appreciate you sharing that with us but what would be your advice to parents who are dealing with the situation you were dealing with i give this advice to all the parents that i talk to don't give up don't give up on them they want to get better it's a disease they want to live don't give up on it. It's going to be hard because your beautiful baby boy or beautiful baby girl are no longer acting like they used to act. The drug is acting for them. And so it's hard sometimes to, to want to not give up, but don't give up. You got to keep them alive, whichever way is necessary so that when they are ready, they are ready to get this disease at least under treatment, at least under recovery, uh, they will be able to do it. Um, I also tell them to learn more, read everything you can. I, I learned more after Tennyson's death than I ever knew when he was ill. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm vice chair of the Substance Use and Mental Health Advisory Council. So I, I get the benefit of learning all of the techniques and things the methodologies that are out there to try to solve this crisis. But a lot of parents don't you're gonna to have to read up on it. There's lots of things on the internet. The internet can be a terrible source of information or it can have a lot of information uh, that is good for you. And, and just sort through it, read up on, on the things that are happening within this crisis and understand through that, 
how to talk uh, with your with your child or your adult child. I always call him my child. He's always going to be my child. But um, learn how to talk about it. Don't don't try to lecture. Don't try to to chastise. Try to understand and and try to help them through it. They're looking for help. Trust me, they may not act like they're looking for help, but they're looking for help. They just don't know how to get it. And sometimes it's very difficult for them to get it in the, in the process or the system we have developed. Uh, certainly back when Tony was, was ill and uh, a little bit today too, we still have things we have to correct. Again, Odyssey House does a great job of helping people, but uh, And are, always have naloxone around. Always, always. I, 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 I lost a, uh, one of my, my last brother, uh, who was a lot older than I, you know, when you're, when you're the youngest in the family by eight years, me, my, my twin sister and myself, uh, you're, you're somewhat regulated to watching everyone else uh, pass. And so my last brother died and I had to go back to, um, to Wisconsin for his memorial. And uh, I took several uh, aerosols of naloxone right with me in my pockets. Uh, I got funny looks when I dropped it into the basket, but who cares? You know, <laughs> too bad, too sad. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing is, carry it with you. You never know when you might need that. And when the person who is suffering needs it and will stay alive to try again another day to stay alive. So, Dennis, you have been wonderful. I appreciate you. Rachel, final thoughts? Yeah, Dennis, thank you for being so courageous to be on here. I, I, this has been such a great show, and I, I appreciate sharing your story and continuing to share your story. Thank you. From everyone in Salt Lake and beyond Utah that needed to hear this and continue to hear this. So thank you. And thank you for donating clothes. Like I actually donated clothes this morning too. And like our clients need it. And so thank you for seeing people when they don't even see themselves. Like that's incredible. My observation, Dennis, is that you could, you and your wife could have uh, just sort of sunken into oblivion and, and, and despair because of what you went through, but instead you took the bull by the horns and worked to improve the system. And that's, that's why we're so thankful to have you, uh, you around in all you've done. So thank you very much. I think, Randall, I appreciate that, but my son gave the ultimate sacrifice to keep people alive. What I'm doing is just a small part to try to, to try to honor his, his life. And I apologize when I talk about him, I still, it's been six years now and I still can't talk about him without, uh, without breaking up. I, I'm sorry about that. I, I appreciate you letting me discuss these important issues with you today. And I'll do that anytime you'd like. Uh, more people understand it, the better we are. Certainly no need to apologize for being an honest person and, and, and expressing your feelings. That's what we all need to do. We thank you, Dennis. Rachel, good to see you again. Yeah, have a great Friday. And thank you for watching another edition of Odyssey House Journals.